This is the Thorn Podcast, the show that navigates the complex world of wellness and explores the latest science behind diet, supplements, and lifestyle approaches to good health. I'm Dr. Robert Roundtree, Chief Medical Advisor at Thorn and Functional Medicine Doctor. As a reminder, the recommendations made in this podcast are the recommendations of the individuals who express them and not the recommendations of Thorn. Statements in this podcast have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Any products mentioned are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Thorn Podcast. Joining me this week, we have a wonderful returning guest, my colleague, Dr. Mary Kay Ross. Dr. Ross is the Chief Medical Officer at Thorn. She's well-trained in functional medicine, and her primary focus has been on dementia, on the, the effect of mycotoxins on the body, traumatic brain injuries, concussions, and hormone replacement therapy, in addition to treating most chronic disorders using the functional medicine model. Dr. Ross, it's great to have you on again. How are things going with you? Well, hi, Bob. Um, thank you so much for having me. And uh, things are going great. We've been really busy at Thorn, working on lots of different programs that can support people with their health. I've been doing well. Yeah, that's great. Can you just tell our listeners one or two things about where you came from before you were at Thorn? Absolutely. So I've been with Thorn for a little over a year, and I've moved to New York City to work uh, at the office in New York. Uh, prior to that, I actually started the Brain Health and Research Institute in Seattle, Washington. I worked with Dr. Leroy Hood and Nathan Price. And prior to that, I was in Los Angeles working with Dr. Dale Bredesen. I'm trained in functional medicine uh, through IFM. Prior to that, I, I grew up sort of in the emergency room. So I'm an emergency room physician and did that for probably at least a good 12 years prior to embarking on functional medicine. Well, as, as we say in, uh, in medicine, I'm sure you had some very interesting experiences working in the ER over the years because uh, you see whatever walks through the door is yours to deal with. You don't ever know what's going to come in next. No, that's true. An exciting place to work. Definitely interesting. Things are always changing every day. Now, I am guessing when you worked in the ER, you probably didn't talk to people very much about their gut microbiome. Uh, it's just a wild guess. But I wonder if when you were working with Dr. Bredesen or Dr. Hood, who I've had the pleasure of interviewing, I wonder if issues around how the bacteria and other microbes in our gut influenced our brain, if that actually came into your your conversation and your consideration. Absolutely. So I think that uh, the microbiome, our gut health individually, is probably one of the most important things to consider and uh, certainly impacts everything from brain health, from your mood, autoimmune diseases, you name it. I think that uh, it all starts in the gut. And this has really been something that we we haven't appreciated in the world of medicine until, what, maybe 15 years ago where things started to change. I was thinking the other day about this new telescope, the James Webb Telescope, and how suddenly we have this 
ability to look way off into space and see things we've never seen before. And, you know, where that's led is asking more questions, you know, not not suddenly having new answers, but a lot more questions. And I think the same things happened with the gut microbiome. We, for years, only had the basic tools of being able to look at a stool sample under a microscope and say, well, you've got parasites or worms or, or not. Um, or do a basic culture and say you have salmonella, shigella, you know, the, the, the basic bad bugs that can cause problems. Now we have this ability, uh, similar to the James Webb telescope, to measure the DNA of everything that's in the stool. Um, and that's opened up all kinds of doors. I wonder if you could maybe say a word about that technology, about what I'm talking about with, with measuring the DNA. Absolutely. So I, I agree with you. The microbiome now has become such an important component in health and everybody's realizing it. I think the technologies are changing rapidly and our ability to, to look at more, to find more. But as you said, you don't always get more answers. Sometimes you develop more questions and you're, you're sort of opening a door that has never been opened before. And, you know, we then bring up new questions to ourselves. So being able to actually look at the DNA and being able to isolate everything that is in the stool is incredible. Prior to that, we did cultures and, you know, that's not a perfect thing. Sometimes things grow, sometimes they don't, sometimes they're contaminated. It has a lot of, brought with a lot of other things. Um, and there are many stool studies out there that still do rely on cultures. Mm -hmm. But looking at the full metagenomics, I think that it opens us up for so much more information. But you know, Bob, you can also have some room for error. There mm -hmm. are some things that when you're sequencing them, that they look very similar to other things. You always have to think about any test you do. You have to think about what the person that's doing the test or the patient looks like, if they're symptomatic, mm -hmm. asymptomatic, and then what you're finding and see if it makes sense, no matter what the technology is. So you just used an interesting term, metagenomics, and it's a term that's got a lot of implications. So I think it's worth defining what that term means and why anybody would care what it means. So first of all, the gold standard pretty much has been in the past, and I guess it still is for, you know, when you're looking at somebody's stool, like if you send it to, to LabCorp, you're looking at culture, which is not as accurate, right? It's not mm -hmm. when we want to know about our um, microbiome, we really want to know everything that we have. I think we all have sort of a microbial thumbprint, if you will. Mm -hmm. So after culture, we did PCR, which is good, but it too has is sort of fraught with its own problems. So when you're doing the metagenomics, you literally are looking at the genes in, of all of the bacteria in the gut. You're also looking at viruses. You're looking at fungal. You're looking at everything. And um, I think that, you know, we can be so much more accurate and we can certainly capture more information than we could before. And I say this because I think I know where we're going with this, but we can feel confident, you know, that our information is very thorough and, and as I said, very accurate, but it too can have its problems as well. But I think that when we want to know our uh, microbiome, we really want to know 
everything that we have in in our in our gut and understanding that there are good bacteria there are bad bacteria sometimes too much of a good bacteria can have an overgrowth and cause problems as well it's not a perfect balancing act per se or maybe it is maybe it really should be a perfect balancing act but none of us are really absolutely perfect in what we have and there are signatures that we can see so when we when we look at the at the uh, microbiome and the metagenomics we can find signatures that we can actually match to health and match to disease i think that's a great way of putting it and uh I know you and I have had several discussions with Guy Daniels, who's a consultant for Thorn and uh, is really, really knowledgeable about the microbiome. And over and over again, he's hammered out the, this notion that you can't just look for one bug and say, well, do you have this? You know, or, you know, this is a good bug and that's all you need. And let's take, for example, acidophilus. So everybody thinks, Lactobacillus acidophilus is the be-all and end-all, and that's all you care about. It's a probiotic. It's in yogurt. Uh, you know, and in the past, we would focus on that one bug and say, well, do you have it? Do you have enough of it? And that's the end of the story. And Guy would say, I want to know about the community. I want to know how the community gets along. And every member of that community has got its own uh, set of strengths and weaknesses. So even when we think about a bacteria, uh, Clostridium difficile, everybody hears that and goes, whoa, that's bad. It you know, causes colitis. Uh, it's what people get after taking antibiotics. But it turns out that not all Clostridium difficile is bad for you. And some of its first cousins who are also Clostridia are actually quite beneficial. Uh, the point being that when you start analyzing all this information, just like when the people looking at the James Webb telescope start analyzing the star clusters that are out there, you know, they have to spend a lot of time uh, really giving it some thought and running it through computer programs to say, yeah, the overall picture, the system is what we're interested in. Is it a good system or a bad system? And I would say that's really what we're working towards, you know, at Thorn is being able to look at uh, at the results of a gut health test and say, well, is this overall a good system or a bad system? I totally Any agree. thoughts on that? Yeah. No, I definitely agree with you. And and then the, the next thing, I, I kind of view the microbiome sort of as your garden, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there are definitely things that you would like to have growing and then you don't want to have too many weeds, which obviously are not good. But you can also have an overgrowth of something that is great that you actually want. And I think that the important thing to understand when, when you think about it is that, you know, your diet, your stress level, all in drugs that you take, all of these things affect sort of that garden, if you will. Mm -hmm. They affect what what kind of bacteria are going to be growing, what's going to be prevailing, because it in itself is its own micro environment, right? Mm -hmm. And so therefore, I really like the way Guy Daniels thinks about this as an environment, because you know, he will look at oftentimes the bacteria. And if you have a dysbiosis or an overgrowth of the wrong bacteria, you can change the environment in your microbiome by what you feed your bacteria and using what we call prebiotic fibers. 
And I think that's an interesting thought as well, because you can really enhance your health um, and your immune system by enhancing the environment in your gut. I wonder if you can define the term dysbiosis in a, in a more technical kind of way. And I, I mentioned that because having been in functional medicine, like you have been for, for many, many years, I know when that term dysbiosis, D-Y-S-B-I-O-S-I-S, when that first came out, I would say the mainstream gastroenterologist said, oh, that's nonsense. You know, I don't know what you're talking about. And now it's in every medical journal all the time, right? So it's a word that's very commonly used, very accepted by the mainstream. But what is it exactly? So when you look at bacteria in the gut, you have good bacteria and bad. You have commensal bacteria and you can have pathologic bacteria. And dysbiosis is an imbalance of that bacteria. It really is when you have an overgrowth and you have uh, some pathologic bacteria. It, it doesn't always mean that you have permeability. Mm -hmm. It doesn't always mean that you have, quote, leaky, leaky gut. Mm -hmm. Although it often does. It often does. And if you don't have it and you have that, you're right around the corner from it, probably, to be honest. But many tests that I look at will say you're, you have dysbiosis, but no permeability. Well, mm -hmm. I still think that is a huge problem and dysbiosis is certainly the first step in the wrong direction. Does that make sense? That makes sense. I can remember a time when kind of norm in the integrative medicine community was to say, oh, you've got gut problems. You know, you've got gas, bloating, diarrhea, whatever. You must have candida, right? You must have overgrowth of candida albicans. And that was kind of the, the go-to diagnosis. And now that we have this metagenomic testing where we can sequence DNA, we know everything that's in there, we're not really finding that much candida. It's not that we never find it, but it's not 90% of gut problems as we thought. Would you agree with that? I agree. It is not nearly as prevalent. It did used to seem that everybody was always on some sort of a yeast protocol and changing their diet for yeast and, you know, taking herbs that would, would uh, reduce their yeast. And, and the reality is I don't see it when I do the testing as often. Um, yeah. <laughs> less common. So, so we used to think everybody has it. Now it's just a subset of the population. That's exactly right. Yeah. And the same thing with certain parasites. I remember people saying, well, uh, you've got these problems. It must be parasites. And there was even one bug that seemed to show up a lot when you look under a microscope, blastocystis hominis, right? Yes. And so all these people were diagnosed with blastocystis <laughs> hominis, and then they were taking these really potent drugs for weeks, if not months on end, to get rid of the blastocystis. Suddenly, we've got this ability to do very sophisticated testing. Where's the blastocystis? We're not seeing it. It's just not there. And I, I find that really fascinating. I do too. And it makes you wonder if there was previous contamination or how all of this, you know, was so, is so skewed in a different yep. direction. Um, but I do believe that with, that the testing we have today is so much more sophisticated, so much more accurate. We can certainly identify the problem so much easier and really hone in on, on what's going on and help make people better. So you mentioned the term prebiotic. What's a, what's a prebiotic? And is it something that, that people can easily get a hold of or is this something esoteric? It's very easy to get a hold of. And I think of a prebiotic as 
what you it's really what you feed your bacteria. So we mm-hmm. don't realize our bacteria, we have a symbiotic relationship with the bacteria in our gut and they make things for us that are very important, like short chain fatty acids, and they have to eat foods as well. And so the prebiotics are things like different fibers that mm-hmm. are easily accessible. Um, mm-hmm. And certainly you can do some in diet. The truth is, I really don't know how much in a diet you would have to eat to actually get a, a the right amount of, of mm-hmm. these prebiotics. I think you almost, when you have a problem and you're trying to fix a problem, I think you probably have to actually work on the prebiotics sort of as a, a medical plan, if you will, or you know, you're going to have to put them in a blender with a smoothie and figure out how to make sure you're getting enough because I don't know of a, that we can eat enough in our diet uh, once we have that kind of problem. Maybe we can. I think that's something we had talked about, you know, with a, I've talked with a dietitian and we're trying to sort of access that information because I think it would be helpful. So it's things like inulin, potato mm-hmm. starch. Mm-hmm. These are things that you can easily buy. And, Mm -hmm. um, and add to a smoothie drink daily, and it will change the environment. Because if you think about it, if this is basically a food for the bacteria you want, and you know what they like to eat, it's Mm -hmm. something you have to do. Now, I will say, recently, having talked with Guy about this, you have to make sure that when you have a problem, that you're doing it to the amount that you need. Does that make sense? Yep. You underfeed, then everything will will sort of grow and eat it, and you're not helping your environment. You can actually make it worse. So there are a lot of different kinds of prebiotics, right? You've mentioned a couple. You mentioned inulin, uh, potato starch. Uh, one in particular that I like a lot that actually Thorn has had for a number of years is called partially hydrolyzed guar gum, and uh, I find this very interesting because. Years ago, when I first started getting into the whole fiber thing, we had this product called Guar Gum, and they were uh, there was a guy named James Anderson, I remember, who was doing a ton of research on it, showing that it lowered blood sugar when people took it, but it was god-awful stuff. I mean, they, they really worked hard to figure out a way to get it down people. They had little crackers and things like that. Do you know much about the difference between that guar gum and the stuff that Thorne is selling, the partially hydrolyzed guar gum, which I think is also called sun fiber? Yeah, I don't know that I know enough about the difference. I'm sure that you know more about the difference. Well, I just know it dissolves better. That that I can say for sure. I use our fiber men. I really like it. Um, and I have had no problems with the taste mm-hmm. and no problems with it dissolving, but I had never experienced the previous guar gum. So I think you'll have to speak for me. I your- can just tell you is so if there's a world of difference and this was kind of revolutionary. They what they did is they figured out how to take the guar gum and basically grind it up so it's more palatable. It dissolves more easily, doesn't have a bad taste, and it really seems to be beneficial for people with irritable bowel syndrome. And there are actually several published studies on it, which brings up a, an interesting point. You know, a lot of people will say, gee, when I take the prebiotics, I get intestinal gas, right? I might, I get a little bit of bloating. And so I uh, assume that that means I shouldn't be doing it. I assume that that means it's bad for me. But uh, but we've heard from Guy Daniels that 
that's not necessarily the case. Can you say something about that? Yes, actually, um, it's my understanding that, you know, when people have a stool study done, and let's say it shows a significant issue, and you're recommended all of these fibers, it can be an abrupt change, right? Mm -hmm. And so certainly, um, it can cause more gas, more bloating and discomfort. And Mm -hmm. My understanding is, and I haven't really experienced that problem personally. Um, I do use the prebiotic fibers, but I guess I just haven't had to take that amount. But my understanding is if you're that person that has a problem, you should see a significant positive change in the next four to five days. Mm -hmm. And hopefully that will be something that will encourage you to continue on. You know, my initial gut, as no pun intended, as a doctor, was (laughs) say, well, let's start slower. Let's build Mm -hmm, up. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. And I think that was your initial feeling Mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. But apparently that actually makes the problem worse and it's Mm -hmm. not helping. So Mm -hmm. it's one of those things, I think, for anybody that's listening, if you're ever in that position where you're recommended to take all these prebiotic fibers and you're experiencing this discomfort, hang in there. You yeah. know, it it, it yeah. may seem miserable at first, but truly there should be a light at the end of the tunnel and you should feel better. And, and if you can do that, you're really making a significant change in the environment and your microbiome. This brings to mind a study that was done uh, a few years ago where they put people on a Mediterranean diet and they actually measured the gas production that they had. And I'm amazed that they got people to do the study the way they did it. I mean, they had a little clicker and every time they passed gas, they were supposed to hit the clicker. Uh, And then in a small number of people, they actually put a a catheter up their rear end and measured the amount of gas. I mean, that's that's dedication to do this study at the same time. So they put people on the diet, which which had all these prebiotic fibers, and then they uh, actually measured their gut microbiome using very sophisticated DNA sequencing techniques. And what they found is that the people that had more gas had an improvement in their microbiome, right? So they got a better microbiome with more of these beneficial bacteria, uh, fewer of the, the harmful, potentially harmful bacteria, so less dysbiosis, Right. So more favorable community of bacteria. And yet they were passing more gas. And so I thought that that was a a really interesting finding, uh, you know, with pretty big implications, because people always tend to assume, well, if I'm I'm having more gas, that must be fermentation. That's got to be a bad thing. And so I better stop whatever it is that I'm doing, but not necessarily. No, that's a good point. Do you know if their gas got better as they acclimated? Oh, you mean uh, over time, <laughs> I would hope that it, yeah, over time, I would hope it became more tolerable, shall we say. That would be my guess, you know, based, based on the kind of feedback that we've gotten from people is that you go through a transition period where things may get a little bit worse before they get better. But when you come into a new a reset, a new normal of a healthier community of gut bacteria, then you would expect there to be a lower kind of background level of fermentation and therefore gas. That's exactly right. Yeah. So that's what we're going for. That's what we're going for. And so, you know, for those that that go through this, it's, it's probably a good sign actually to 
you know, initially you will feel the difference. You'll feel the bacteria digesting the prebiotic fibers and you will have uh, more bloating, more gas that should get better. So all this, just to kind of wrap up this conversation, it's interesting to me that we, we have all this new information, you know, the James Webb uh, ability to like really peer in deep into the gut microbiome. And I have no doubt that using computers and artificial intelligence, that we're going to get more and more understanding, you know, that's going to lead to more and more precise recommendations for people. But at the same time, we're coming away from this realizing the importance of these prebiotics, right? That that's something that's really been emphasized in our understanding. Uh, and that's changed, again, from the old days of saying, well, you've got candida, you've got blastocystis, let's just give you an antibiotic for three weeks or give you an antifungal drug for three weeks and we're done. Now we're talking more about making a healthy garden by putting in better fertilizer. And that's the number one intervention here. That's exactly right. I mean, I really do believe that at the end of the day, if everything were perfect in our world and our diet was perfect and our stress levels and everything else, we really shouldn't have problems with our gut, right? Right. But problems are probably one of the number one things that everybody has. That everybody is dealing with. So we've got a potential here to change that. Oh, we do. We definitely do. A lot of it, though, and I do feel this way in functional medicine, a lot of it falls back on the patient. I mean, it's mm -hmm. it's how we eat. It's how we live our life with stress. Stress is a big factor on the gut. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it's important to remember that, you know, most of your serotonin is made in your gut. In your gut. So mood is impacted. So if you have an unhealthy gut, it's no, it's not a surprise then that you might have anxiety because it's certainly going to impact your your mood as well. Well, great. So let's um, let's take a break, and then when we come back, we'll answer some questions from our listeners. Do you want a monthly dose of wellness delivered directly to your inbox? Thorns Take 5 Daily offers the latest wellness news, research, and insights distilled down into easy-to-digest and fun-to-read stories. It's updated weekly with stories from Thorns' very own medical team. You'll read about the latest in immune health, diet, lifestyle advice, managing stress, and more. Head to thorn.com and visit Take 5 Daily to subscribe for free and have your wellness content delivered directly to your inbox. Visit thorn.com to learn more. That's T-H-O-R-N-E.com. And we're back. So now it's time to answer some questions that have come in from our community. The first question this week comes from a listener who asks, how do people develop IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, and will it go away over time? Well, I think that that last part, I wish that was true, that it would just go away over time. I would say my answer, immediate answer to that is it doesn't tend to just go away on its own. So Mary Kay, how do people develop irritable bowel syndrome? Well, I think people can develop irritable bowel syndrome numerous ways. One of them can be 
things like infectious diarrhea mm -hmm. um, and, and post-infectious diarrhea. Mm -hmm. um, they can also develop IBS from several things in their environment, mm -hmm. whether it's stressful environment and, and diet related. And it's something that it's almost to me, this is going to sound really weird, but like a muscle memory, mm -hmm. a bowel memory. Okay. It, it mm -hmm. doesn't always go away. And it's something that, you know, if you have the propensity to go there, you go there again when the wrong, wrong things are occurring. Does that make sense? What do you think? Yeah. Well, I think there's, there's clearly genetic components to it, right? Now it's not one gene, one diagnosis, right? There's not one gene that causes it, but there's some pretty good evidence that there's something called channelopathies, which I know to our readers, that might sound a little complicated, but a channelopathy is something that affects how nerves fire. And we know that one of the hallmarks of IBS is a sensitivity of the gut, right? A sensitivity of the organs that can lead to discomfort. So, you know, this classic symptom of IBS, person just doesn't feel good. Their, their gut always feels a little bit sore. They're a little bit bloated and their motility is off, right? They either things move too fast or too slow. Now that might be built in, right? That's an inherent tendency, but the person doesn't have symptoms unless they get dysbiosis. So maybe they're fine, then they go on vacation to Mexico and they uh, drink some bad water and end up with diarrhea and then their gut just never seems to be the same again, right? So is that dysbiosis that results, is that the cause of IBS? Well, they already had the predisposition, but then the bacteria get out of balance. And I've seen this in people that ended up having to take an antibiotic and you would think, well, if they just got a bad bug, take the antibiotic and the problem is solved. Maybe the acute problem goes away, but then things are never right again. I have a question for you, Bob. What yes. about the enteric nervous system and yep. any kind of impact that it can have with IBS? Yeah. So that's what, when I talk about the channelopathies, that's, I'm talking about new genetic variants that have been found in the gut nervous system, the enteric nervous system that make the nerves more prone to firing abnormally. Dr. Gershon has written this book, The Second Brain, about the gut. And he says it's kind of like a conveyor belt that's speeding up and slowing down erratically. So what's the conveyor belt? A lot of it is serotonin production. Most of the serotonin in our body is made in the gut, as you mentioned. And what can happen is you get a, a lot of serotonin, too much serotonin, that causes a problem. And then the body gets depleted. The gut gets depleted of serotonin. So the other extreme happens, and that's the irritability. So you've got this erratic serotonin production. And some of that, interestingly enough, can be influenced by immune cells, especially mast cells, which are known to line the gut, which is why things like quercetin and curcumin, boswellia, have, can be helpful for irritable bowel syndrome. So, you know, Thorne's got this great product called Interamin. Okay, I helped design it. Uh, I'm fond of that product. But you would think, you know, that it's for other things besides IBS, and yet it's got the fiber in it. It's part of the solution. The solution is not just taking a probiotic. That's exactly right. And, and I have patients that have IBS and will not have an infection. They don't necessarily have a huge sudden traveling with infection, 
but a stressful event can just whop it right back on. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And and I think that is what I call, and I know it's the channelopathy. It's muscle memory. It's the, it's Mm -hmm. their enteric nervous system firing too much. Yep. Um, Yep. And so, yeah, you definitely cannot fix this with just a probiotic by any stretch um, where you could actually end up with further problems, right? Further problems. So that kind of leads into our next question. It's kind of a general question. Should I be taking a prebiotic? And so this person doesn't say they've got a problem. They just want to know, should I take a prebiotic or should I take a probiotic or should I take both? (laughs) We could spend an hour on that one. I know we could. It's funny because there are people and I, I know I have a friend who was so shocked at how much she loves probiotics. And, you know, she thought this has just been, where has this been all my life? It was actually a friend of mine's daughter. I don't think that take, you know, we can all take probiotics and some of us will benefit and some of us won't. Some people more than others. Some mm-hmm. people, you know, I'm a probiotic user at certain times. If I've had to take an antibiotic, I will take a probiotic and I will do it two hours away from the antibiotic so it's not killing my probiotic. But I think that every day, I don't know that we need a probiotic. Some people benefit, some don't. Prebiotics, really, if the best thing in the world would be if we could just eat a diet with lots of fiber, right? And then you can add a prebiotic fiber easily to a smoothie. And I don't think you'll ever have too much by having the prebiotic fiber present. So given the Western diet, I think it's pretty safe to say that almost everybody needs more fiber. And fiber is is not exactly synonymous with prebiotics, but it's pretty close. So I think we could say a yes to everybody could benefit from a prebiotic and some people from a probiotic. And, And I have to say, I have an example that comes to mind of a patient that had longstanding IBS with uh, diarrhea, loose stools, and she actually specifically asked me, what's the best probiotic for me? And this is a couple of years ago. I said, well, you know, there's this probiotic called Good Belly, right? You can buy it most any store. It's Lactobacillus plantarum, LP299V. We actually have it in little pearls. Uh, but it's, it's you know, widespread in all kinds of foods and things like that. And I said, look, this is designed for people like you. This is going to be great. So she took it, got the worst cramping diarrhea ever within days. And I just said, oh, my God. So um, I said, well, why don't you try Bacillus coagulans? Because that's a very different kind of bacteria. It's a spore former. It's a soil-based organism you know, it's, there's a lot of data on it. She took it. It worked great. And she's taken it for years. Now, I just saw her a couple of weeks ago. She's taken it for years. And it really helps. So I think it's really important to realize that everybody responds differently. And we just don't know how to tailor it. Now, that, that actually leads into the next question. So that was kind of a setup for the next question, which is, if everyone's gut has a different makeup of bacteria... Why don't we have unique probiotics for every gut? So if I've got bacteria A, but I take a probiotic with bacteria B, could that cause a problem? So I've kind of set things up for that question. (laughs) Well, you know, that's interesting because yes, it could cause a problem or it could be good. As you said, it's a very, very individual thing. Everybody responds 
differently. There have been companies that have tried to make probiotics specifically for individuals, you know, on a personalized basis. And the reality is, you know, I always go back, I really believe that prebiotics are probably the way to stay. Probiotics are things that we can take periodically. And, you know, there's no guarantee that what works for me is going to work for you. Pretty much it's guaranteed that it it probably won't uh, exactly the same, you know? I, I do have to say when I have a patient that needs antibiotics, you know, and, and I get a fair number of calls from people saying, I, I saw my dentist, I've got a dental infection, he wants me to go on amoxicillin for a week, what should I do? Then quite often I'll tell people to take Saccharomyces boulardii, right, SAC-B, uh, because there's good data on it. It's a fungus, right? It's a yeast, right? So it's not going to be sensitive to the amoxicillin or to any other antibiotic. So I think the data is good enough that I can kind of use that as a generic recommendation for people without having to do a gut microbiome test, etc. Yep. And it treats C. diff. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Should that happen? I actually treated my mother with that and she did great. She had been on a long course of antibiotics and had that problem. And, but yeah, that's a very safe thing to do. It's a great recommendation. It's easy to take and you don't have to worry about the antibiotics killing your. um... Yeah. So I would say, yes, the holy grail of gut microbiome testing, the holy grail is to be able to, to do the tests, to look at the community of bacteria that's there and say, this means you need lactobacillus acidophilus strain LA4, right? Nobody's there yet. No. Right? There is no lab in the world that has that level of specificity. So, And if anyone is saying that we know for sure that you're going to benefit most from this or that, you know, we're, we're just not there yet. We're moving in that direction, but I think it's going to take a while before we can have that level of specificity. That being said, something like Saccharomyces boulardii, because it's, it's doing something a little bit different than just adding in a missing bacteria, right? It's got its own set of benefits. So I almost see it as kind of outside of the realm of normal probiotics. Oh, and, absolutely. you know, even, so even if I put somebody on a probiotic, other probiotic, I might still use the SAC-B on top of that. That's right. That's right. And I do that myself, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. this next question kind of is a segue into that. Person says, I have really difficult, painful bowel movements. I take thorn floor sport, but it only helps sometimes. How do I fix this problem? First of all, if you're taking floor sport and you're having painful bowel movements. Sometimes it helps, sometimes it doesn't. You can actually have an overgrowth of commensal bacteria when you take a probiotic more than you should. Mm -hmm. Um, I certainly think this is somebody that, you know, it'd be interesting. I I would feel very comfortable saying adding more fiber and Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. prebiotic fiber. And, you know, that should help some. I probably would um, hold the fluorosport and see Mm -hmm. If that makes a difference, be interesting to see their stool study, right? Yep, um, yep. But yeah, that would be my concern. Yeah, or, you know, just switch to another probiotic. I mean, that's, I do that with patients all the time because the use of a particular probiotic is trial and error. That's right. That's what I'm saying. The, the gut microbiome test can maybe help give you an idea 
of which one would be more or less helpful. But the first thing I say is just try another probiotic, you know. There's plenty of other options out there. And then, as you mentioned, persons having difficult, painful bowel movements, that's, that speaks to me of a fiber deficiency. Exactly. That's what I think. I really think that is going to be the game changer for them. They may not need a probiotic. Yeah, yeah. Or at least right away, they may not need oh, one. That's right. It's The next question says, uh, what is there an easy way to reset my gut health? What should I do? To, is there an easy way? <laughs> There's not an easy, easy way, but... <laughs> yeah, but so what you're talking about, the fibers, you know, the prebiotics are a straightforward way. That's right. Of doing that. Yeah. No, I, That's probably going to make the biggest difference of anything. It, it makes so much sense. It absolutely is going to make a big difference. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then maybe the uh, maybe the last question we should focus on: What gut bacteria cause weight gain? Whoa! And how do I get rid of them? That's kind of a million dollar question, I think. Isn't it? Wow. Well, we know that there are bacteria that um, actually will cause weight gain, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think that's something that you know a lot of people are actually working on today mm -hmm. because of the metabolism, right? The metabolism of the bacteria it certainly affects our metabolism and weight gain. I mean, I don't, I don't know what else to say. The way to get rid of them um, is certainly something by changing the environment, probably many of the similar ways, but uh, they have to be identified properly and then effectively change that environment, right? And some of those are actually good bacteria. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But the problem is that with the way that the impact they have on our nutrition and our um, metabolism. So right? I, the, I, I guess, yeah, my my takeaway from the research on this is that there's groups of bacteria that are better at energy extraction. Right. Right. And if a person's gut microbiome is dominated by energy extractors, then they don't have to eat very much because those bacteria are so efficient at sucking up the energy from food. Right. That, you know, suddenly they're putting on weight without eating hardly anything. That's we right. all know people like that. They say, I don't eat anything and I gain weight. Yeah. Right? And they're not necessarily pathologic bacteria, though. Right. Right. That's what I'm saying. They're, it's not like bacteria. there's a bad bug. That's right. And um, and so it just changes the way we metabolize and what we absorb. And we're not utilizing. Yeah. Burning enough. Now, I just saw a, a new study that came out, I think, this week where they gave people a probiotic that suppressed their appetite and they lost weight. And so I thought, oh, I wonder what that probiotic was. Well, the bug was called Hafnia alvei. Oh. And I thought, wait a minute, Hafnia alvei, that has been known to cause diarrhea, right? That's not a that's not a bug that I would want to be giving people in a pill. I mean, they didn't have any side effects in the in the study, but it made me nervous. And I think, okay, we've got to be careful going in that direction. And I mentioned this because I think you're going to see a lot more new probiotics on the market of things you've never heard of, right? Instead of lactobacillus or bifido or bacillus coagulans, the saccharomyces, you're going to suddenly start seeing hafnia alvei. Uh, you're going to see Christensenella. I mean, I'm telling you, there's at least a dozen of these designer probiotics that are coming out, and we don't know what's going to happen as a result of that. Whereas we don't have any problem telling people, eat these fibers. That's exactly right. I mean, it's the safest way to make a big change in your gut, honestly. 
Great. Well, that's all the time we have this week. So, Dr. Ross, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Where can our listeners go to follow more of what you're doing and the, the ongoing research at Thorne? Well, they can actually, you know, follow me through Thorn. Um, certainly, we we have lots of information about what we're doing. We put it in the Take Five dailies and other podcasts, and we're readily working on a, a brain health program actually for consumers that will be coming out first quarter of next year. And it's an opportunity for people that are worried about cognition and don't necessarily want to do a big program or go to a doctor or do things but they're just worried about their future and how to preserve brain health, uh, this will be an opportunity for them to do that in the privacy of their own home with the support of Thorne. Great. I, I think I can drop a tantalizing hint that we have some, some potential interventions that we'll be talking about in the near future that can really help protect a person's brain from injury. That's right. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah, let's just leave it at that, shall we? Yes, we're, we're <laughs> waiting for the final results, but we are very excited. All right, well, thank you so much, and we look forward to having you on in the future. Thanks for listening to the Thorn Podcast. Make sure to never miss an episode by subscribing to the show on your podcast app of choice. If you've got a health or wellness question you'd like answered, Simply follow our Instagram and shoot a message to at ThornHealth. You can also learn more about the topics we discussed by visiting Thorn.com and checking out the latest news, videos, and stories on Thorn's Take 5 daily blog. Once again, thanks for tuning in, and don't forget to join us next time for another episode of the Thorn Podcast.